0: Welcome to the TheJournal.A's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and this week, how are other countries dealing with COVID-19 compared with Ireland? We're all getting used to looking at graphs of cases of COVID and deaths from COVID, but quantitative comparisons are difficult for the layperson as there are so many contributing factors and, and those graphs can often be too simple or too complex. But how are other people in other countries coping with situations that are now familiar to everyone no matter where in the world they live? So we wanted our guests today to explain what it's like to live where they are living right now. From the countries who are said to be doing well to beat this thing, that's Germany, South Korea, to the new epicenter, the USA, and the outlier, Sweden. I'll be joined online by a resident of Berlin, LA, Seoul, and Stockholm, who will let us know what approach the governments have taken, how people are coping, and what experiences are unique to that country. Our first stop was Germany, where there are currently just shy of 86,000 cases and more than 1,100 deaths. The situation, as you obviously know, is rapidly evolving. But that's where it stands at this time of recording on Friday afternoon. I spoke to Kate Connolly, Berlin correspondent with The Guardian, and I began by asking her what the current restrictions are in Germany.
1: Yes, yeah, so basically, it's sort of widespread lockdown. The borders are all closed. um, so people can come in if they have a German passport. um but in but other people can't. and uh, and people also who are working in Germany who have a residency permit, day-to-day movements are restricted to the vital things of going shopping, going to a doctor's appointment, um and people, have to stick in, uh, you know, the groups they would live in and in the households. Uh, So if they go out to the park, then you will have to be living in a household together. Um, and you can go out and do your sport as long as you don't have contact with other people um, and, you know, the, the usual two-metre distance. So when you're, you queue up to get into the supermarket, people wiping down the trolley handles, all of that. I'm sure it's there are familiar scenes elsewhere. And there are also fines that uh, there's a fine system for people who break those rules. Um, we understand that in, in different parts of Germany are implementing them differently according to the way people are behaving. How are the restrictions being policed, is it is it very strict? Does it feel very strict? It doesn't feel very strict in that it just feels that people are being are being very sensible about it in general I mean that's just looking at it from where from where, where I am you know from my the, the small radius of my life has become uh, you know working from home doing the usual that, that most people are doing and um, in, in general a great deal of respect that you feel people are showing towards each other that, that wouldn't normally be felt here so um, occasionally we see police helicopters going over and um, there is uh, there have been reports that they are actually going out to look for people who might be hanging out having so-called corona parties which has been a big thing here over the last few weeks although they have died down a lot when universities and schools spilled out um so that uh, there's that's that degree of control and and police could intervene if they you know quite easily if they see somebody breaking the rules um and that's been happening more sort of in in the in the densely pop, densely populated parts of Berlin where there are a lot of people who you know come to Berlin looking for the party life um, a lot of younger people who for whom I think these restrictions are, are are really tough compared to you know people who have I mean you know people who have kids who are sort of maybe you're you're sort of used to certain restrictions put on your life but i think for younger people here you really feel that it's 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 a tougher time actually and obviously then obviously for you know for elderly people as well yeah like
0: the 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 weekdays and the weekends aren't any different to each other now i think that's the the main thing when did these restrictions come into place Kate were they phased in in Ireland they've been kind of phased in um, at different different levels over different weeks were, was this an all in one or were they phased in in Germany too
1: they have been phased in and it was interesting to see because you know we were all watching what was happening in, in Wuhan in China and how they were dealing with it and then it, it spread how it spread there and you know this feeling of w- we would never have that you know we will never act like they're acting there and then of course it's crept over here and then gradually it's become absolutely acceptable. Even now, um, the idea of talking about tracking people via their mobile phones, so that would be the system whereby um, a mobile phone company offers the data of their customers, but they say it's anonymized, so you cannot actually put the data to the customer and would then monitor the way they're moving around. Now, we understand that that has been happening with one telecom company, um, but as to a widespread uh, implementation of that, that has not yet been allowed by the lawmakers um great nervousness in germany about things like that because of their history with um the state's uh, secret police the stasi who spied on people for a long time uh, over many decades um and the of the nazi era where similar things happened so great nervousness about that happening that if you roll back the rules and let that happen now will that still you know will that be a a licence then for that to continue after this is all over. So all of these things are being discussed but yes, gradually, gradually the rules have got tighter and tighter so um, and now the uh, discussion is over whether they should implement um, masks, the wearing of masks, so whether that would be a homemade cloth face and mouth cover or a a medical type mask whereby the the wearer would be protecting the, the people they are meeting rather than protecting themselves. It wouldn't stop you from getting corona virus but I think at the moment the feeling is there are so many restrictions that have been put in place people have had to or are enduring quite a lot that um, I think they're hoping almost that people will do that automatically and certainly going out on the streets today the difference from day to day there are more and more people wearing these face masks Um, so I think we might also actually that could be something that does actually become a rule at some point. And particularly when they start talking about loosening the lockdown, um, how then people should be going about their day-to-day lives where we would expect massive restrictions still to be in place. Yeah,
0: one of the problems that we've had we've had experience of here in Ireland is a shortage of PPE medical equipment and that includes face masks. Has that not been hampering Germany if there is face masks available for each person?
1: well i think therefore that's why the discussion has been more like sew your own so there are uh, uh, sewing instructions being passed around for, for, you know i'm getting emails every day with people passing on the the instructions um, there's a big appeal for um people to So masks for hospitals, for care homes. So the sort of underlying message seems to be we need you to be helping us out for the people who really need them, the people on the front line, the people in the care homes. But then, you know, if you if while you're about it, do you know make one for yourself so there are also textile companies who are offering the the right type of cloth um and and but you know advising people how to make them so the shortages have, have been felt here in germany as well um, and a lot of uh, face masks still even now um this is from doctors i have spoken to still regularly being stolen from hospitals along with disinfectant and uh and and an, and an interesting debate going on here where the health minister has said it's absurd that we have we are in the situation where we um, we are not able to provide these things for ourselves we need to bring them in from outside so I think one of the um, things we will see after the virus is a concerted effort to ensure that medical necessities are actually produced within Germany so that they don't have to go outside um, to get them. Yeah that kind of brings up
0: what you were saying as well about Germany kind of looking at its history and, and its past in how it approaches this. How would like on a kind of more macro level, how would you describe the government's approach to um, this virus since, I guess, December, January?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, huge amount of debate here. How did they do the right thing? Have they acted uh, quickly enough? Have they acted vigorously enough? And, you know, the government, I mean, nobody here is being complacent. So, you, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about the fact that the infection rate in Germany is relatively high compared to the death rate. So, um, where we understand, um, I think, from today, something like 890 people have died um, and 72,000 people are infected. Um, but that is not, there are all sorts of explanations given to that. So, yes, they, they, there is an understanding that the uh, authorities here did act swiftly, um to recognise the virus. So I think the first case here was on the 28th of January. Um, and then so they started widespread testing very, very early on. And, uh, and the understanding is that's why they got a lot of younger people. Um, they caught a lot of those cases near the beginning. That was a lot of people who'd been on skiing holidays in South Tyrol um, and Northern Italy and in Austria. Um, the feeling is that those figures are actually covering up what is about to happen which is that a lot of the elderly people who have so far have not had it will get it so using that to explain that um whilst a lot of people are looking at germany and saying wow they've they're dealing with it very well there's there's certainly no complacency here and there's a there's a really a, a feeling um that everything is just about to um come to a head and The health minister yesterday, Jens Spahn, who has become, his popularity ratings have soared. So it's an indication that he's there's a lot of respect towards his actions and what he's doing. But he's been saying that, um, uh, you know, we could have done things differently. I mean, should we have stopped people from going on their winter holidays? So there's a week in January or February, I mean, uh, where people go on their skiing holidays. A lot of people went to Austria, South Tyrol, and brought the illness back, um, but he said we were warning people at that stage. But it's you know Germany is not a dictatorship, so they weren't uh, telling people at that stage you 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 cannot go. Um, they were being very gentle in their approach, and so obviously the question is, should they have been harsher? On
0: the obviously we're in a health crisis, but it's also an economic crisis and a and a social crisis as well. In terms of one of the things that probably the UK has seen most, it has been panic buying and um, kind of chaotic scenes in, in food stores. Has that been um, seen in Germany or have there been any other side effects like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I get the impression it has not been quite as bad as as Germany from what I've been following in the UK um, and from what my own family in the UK have been telling me. Um, But certainly we've had exactly the same sort of toilet roll shelves, completely empty, pasta gone, except for the more unusual varieties um, and um, and soup packets, all of that sort of thing. And, you know, I kind of, I, I have I can quite understand obviously not if you see somebody going down the road with 10 packets of toilet roll but people buying extra at a time when they're being told you know you should not be leaving your house um unless it's absolutely necessary so I think that's that's quite understandable here um but I don't think I think it's got better I think uh, and I think as this situation becomes more and more normal um and people realize that um that foodstuffs will get to the shelves, Um, that will become less of an issue. Um, What is quite an issue here, which I'm sure it's exactly the same in Ireland and, and elsewhere, is the question over who is going to bring the harvest in. So... Um, Every year, Germany has something like 300,000 temporary workers that come in from outside, so mainly from Eastern Europe, from neighbouring Poland and elsewhere, who bring in the harvest. We've got the asparagus harvest, which is imminent. That's a a major event in the um, German culinary calendar, um, white asparagus, which is... um, So the question is, how are they going to bring that in? They've been asking for volunteers and hundreds of volunteers um, have come forward so people who are at the moment not being able to do their normal work Um, but yes that's one part of it there's obviously you know all the other um, fruit and vegetables that need to be um, harvested at some point, and, and the questions to who is going to do that. So, I think the issue of food sh- supplies um, is going to continue to be to be a big one here as well. With with the amount
0: of people who can't physically do their jobs, what has Germany been doing for them? Is there a wage
1: subsidy um, scheme in place? There's there's a there's a very um, what would appear to be a very effective emergency fund for for people. So. Um, Uh, First of all, for self-employed people, Um, I was just looking on uh, Twitter and a freelancer said she had already got her sub her supplementary payment through from the government, um, which she said was going to keep her keep her going. And she said how grateful she felt for that, that she'd seen in other countries that was not so easy. Um, a lot of workers um, for the last few weeks has been a system in place, or for the past three weeks, of being able to be put on reduced working hours um, where the employer can pay them less and the government makes up the difference. Um, obviously, a big question mark over how long that can go on for. Um, A few months ago, the big question in Germany was um, what the government planned to do with the big, Uh, budget surplus it had so um, Germans are obsessed with being in the black um, and you know what are we going to do with the money that we've got left in the coffers should we not be using it for fixing roads improving infrastructure um, uh, internet in rural areas etc and now of course that feeling is that that extra money is now going to be funding the corona crisis and Germany is also um, talking about the fact that it will have to go into the red Um, to continue to do it uh, on the understanding that this is going to be going on for several months more. Um, so still a lot of question about whether companies should be being switched should be switching to making ventilators and that sort of thing, but a lot of companies have been doing it voluntarily anyway. there's not been any forcing um, them to do so from the government as we've seen for example in America.
0: I think the the toilet paper thing we mentioned earlier that seems to be something that's universal like the stockpiling of toilet paper but is there anything that you've spotted um in berlin that is kind of culturally specific ha- habits or attitudes that have either helped or hindered um the fight against spreading this virus
1: well i think yes as we mentioned i mean the party attitude berlin is a party city it's a party with nightclubs that stay open around the clock so you can you know walk in on a tuesday and come out on a friday i mean literally it's sort of that's what it thrives on, and all the cultural, you know, all the artists. There's just a big culture of that. So all of that seems to have ground to halt, and there's just emptiness. I mean, it is just an extraordinary sight to walk to the Brandenburg Gate, which is normally heaving with tourists, particularly now with the sun shining. Um, I think what I've found personally interesting is, say, you know, having the little uh, joke with the, the neighbour about why the toilet paper obsession is there and, you know, um, uh, what that has to say about About people, and then people saying, "Well, you know, during the GDR years of of Eastern Communist East Germany, we used uh, we tore up uh, newspaper, and we didn't have toilet paper necessarily." You know, so that sense of we've been through worse, and we are very good at at self-sufficiency amongst, say, East former or former Eastern Germans. um, That is that is very strong and coming out, and that sense of, you know, we'll we'll manage this. this, this The self-sufficiency, people growing their own. food. and all of that sort of thing um, I think that is um, standing Germans in fairly good stead. And I think that what I found quite nice to see is just a sense of of warmth, of warmth between people that isn't necessarily there as much as you'd like it to be. It's not like when, you know, when I visit Ireland, the contrast is so great. Um, so there's a there's a just a twink, more of a twinkle in people's eyes. Um, uh, the, the, the thank yous are coming out more readily um, when you're dealing with, people like supermarket caches, just the sense of humor is a bit more um to the fore than it normally would be and that's um that's obviously a, a positive aspect of this what have
0: these restrictions been like for you as somebody who's not native to the country but is now restricted uh, to being there for for you know, who knows how long?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we were planning. We we had a we had a train trip planned. We were going to take the train to London at Easter, see my family, try and um, heal some of the Brexit wounds that have gone through my family. And now, obviously, that's been uh, put on hold, and we're uh, riv- riv- res- riv- riv- resorting to FaceTime chats. Um, but that's had the strange effect of, um, I think, sort of bringing everybody a bit closer together um, uh, despite the fact that there's the distance there um, and so I'm, I'm trying to not see it as something like kind of imprisonment I mean it, in a way it sort of feels just like if um, you know uh, when your kids are young and you're just you know you're just sort of slightly more can find your radius is, is smaller anyway so I'm just trying to see it in the most positive way um, but obviously yeah working from home and just um, and very much um, dependent on, on on every sort of sort of information that I can get from outside calling people doing interviews um, via Um, video links and things like that it's all sort of quite new Um, but the the Guardian um, who I work for has been printing for for, um, 199 years so the very strong message came from our editor Kath Viner that um, we had Produced the paper during world war one between uh, during the 1918 uh, spanish flu and the second world war and we had never missed a day so we were definitely not going to be able to miss a day now so um with that that's the sort of challenge that you feel that you should be able to rise to which is is, is quite quite nice in a way Next, we're gonna head to the United
0: States, which has become the new epicenter of the coronavirus, where cases will soon outstrip 250,000. And sadly, there have been more than 6,000 deaths there. Marine McKeown, who you will all know as the Last Words US correspondent with Matt Cooper on Today FM and US correspondent with The Business Post. She's currently in LA looking at a situation which is made significantly more interesting and sometimes unfortunately bewildering with Donald Trump as president. So I asked her to sum up his actions so far and those of the government.
2: I think um, Tuesday people finally started getting on the same page, it seemed, from the federal government and the Trump administration and what's happening around the country. And there is such a disconnect uh, in New York, where I spend a lot of my time uh, every day at the moment. You have the New York uh, governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, who does a 9 a.m. briefing there, and and he sets out in the most clear, concise way possible exactly what's happening. He provides the latest statistics. He says what New Yorkers are doing. He says what they are to do. And, it, you know, it, it, it's a it's a real sort of leadership. And, you know, Cuomo was not the most popular governor of New York prior to this, but he, he really has stepped up to the plate. And I have to say he's stepping up to the plate because of the huge vacuum of leadership uh, coming out of Washington, D.C., where really Donald Trump um, in the first, I mean, we're, we're, we're about six weeks into this crisis now, I suppose, when people really started taking it seriously around, I think it was uh, maybe in February sometime. Uh, and and the, he also does daily briefings and you could not get a greater contrast it literally is like night and day Um he tends to come out on the he's he uses his briefings really as political rallies and i've spoken to a number of people in and around washington and and former officials of trump who say that for him, his rallies are like oxygen that he's got. He craves that attention and adulation that he gets from those rallies where he goes all around the country, mainly in the red states, and 10, 20,000 people turn up and they cheer him and they stamp their feet. And the adulation I mean, I've been there dozens of times, really is something to behold. But now he's trying to co opt the daily briefings, or he has been at least, um, into these rallies where he'll start off throwing out a few bits and pieces about the coronavirus, mainly things that are wholly inaccurate um, and, you know, exaggerations are underplaying. And then he tends to lay into whatever, you know, his campaign rally meat is, whether it's attacking NATO for reasons that are best known to him, whether it's attacking the media, which always plays well at the rallies, and attacking individual journalists from NPR and CNN and places like that. Uh, So, and you can see um, even as an example, a small example of how he has not been taking this seriously until a couple of days ago, uh, the the White House press briefing room, the James Brady room, is about the size of an average living room. It's tiny. Now, he was on the stage in there, which is about the size of a big dining room table, with six, seven, seven, a dozen other people at the same time. And they're all cramped onto together. They're all using the same lectern. And, you know, meanwhile, all the journalists are cramped in as well. So you know, there's no It's it's been getting better in the last two or three days, but I've got to say he's really several weeks late and several billion dollars short in responding to this crisis in the way it needs to be responded to, which is testing and adequate equipment for the frontline staff, for the first responders and also just providing the, the you know the states with what they need to fight this. So sorry that's a very long answer to your question tonight. I apologise.
0: Yeah no because it, it was a it was kind of an all encompassing question. What has changed in the last two to three days? We did see the headline you know that we're going to have a hell of a couple of weeks in the US um, what has changed in the approach and why has it changed in the last two or three days?
2: Okay well in the last two or three days they, they have these models where they, you know the, the, the medical and scientific experts say you know they put all all the information into the, their database and it all goes into the matrix and it, it comes out, you know, in a certain way. Now, it seems that the US is going to be following the Italian model. And if you extrapolate that America has 220, 320 million people are thereabouts, uh, That that is not good. Really, reality has bitten very hard in America. Uh, there are some excellent people, notably Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's been leading the NIH, the NIH since the AIDS crisis in the 80s, he knows how to deal with pandemics. He knows how to deal with these situations. And it seems that he has sat Trump down and said, look, we are going to lose hundreds and thousands of people if we don't start responding to this properly. And I think that even the daily leaps at the moment as we speak, it's about 400,000 people dead in America in around 1500 Dead in New York alone, about 200,000 people have, who are infected. Now, there are big problems with this because we're hearing every day that the testing, you know. Um, two weeks ago, Donald Trump said 4 million tests had already been sent out. Well, that just wasn't true. It just wasn't true. Now he's saying that every state has the number of tests that they need. That's not true either. Testing is way behind the curve. And until people get tested, they don't know if they've got the virus. And until they know whether or not they've got the virus, they don't know who else they have contaminated. So the testing really is a huge failing here at the moment. And as I say, and um, in, in the last couple of days, and as you pointed out, Sinead, uh, there are signs that Donald Trump is taking this more seriously. Now he's almost going to the worst case scenario. A couple of weeks ago, he was saying 15 people, only 15 people. We have it under control. It'll disappear in a couple of days. Now he's saying, yes, it could be 200,000, 240,000. And I suspect now it's, it's almost if you exaggerate or if he believes he's exaggerating the numbers at this stage, then if it's only 100,000, and I say only it with you know quote marks then he will tout this as a huge success so there's as i said this is why i don't trust numbers and i don't trust the manipulation of numbers particularly from the white house
0: yeah so it, when you're talking then of a more fragmented um, approach to this because for the last few weeks it has been dependent on each state and the leaders of each state um w- is there signs that there will be a more federal approach a, a more country-wide approach to this from from here on
2: in? Well, you see, again, the disconnection aid is in what we're being told by Trump in these daily briefings where he would have you believe everything is happening perfectly, everybody is getting whatever they want and what the governors are saying. Now, the governors are saying that they're not getting even a fraction of what they need. So ventilators is a huge thing here. Uh, for example, Louisiana, Mardi Gras went went on as usual in February this year uh, in New Orleans. Now, as I don't know if the two are connected, but it seems certainly that allowing tens and thousands of people to cram into the streets for a four-day party was, at best, a bad idea. Uh, New Orleans um, now has a spike in cases. They say they need at least 4,000 ventilators. Uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Response Agency, has given them 150. Yet Donald Trump is saying that every state is getting everything it needs, and now he is deciding that, well, I don't think they need this money, but nobody knows what he's basing that on. Uh, for example, he and Andrew Cuomo, the New York governor, have clashed repeatedly. Andrew Cuomo has said that they need. They will need 30 to 40 thousand ventilators. And he's saying, No, you won't. But it, Andrew Cuomo is basing his anticipated need on statistics, on on very meticulous research. Whereas Donald Trump is basing it on trying to slap down. the the impression that he's not responding correctly. So some governors are responding well just because they're good, competent governors, not because they're Republican or Democrat. Uh, Gavin Newsom in California is responding very, very well to this. And California has quite a low rate relative to its population. The population of California is about 40 million people. New York's about half of that. Now, we don't have the population density in Los Angeles that you have in Manhattan or New York, where people are living mainly in apartments and mainly in small apartments. But, there, you know, L.A. is a city of about six million people. L.A. County is about 14 million people. So you're, you're dealing with huge numbers, but the numbers are relatively low at the moment uh, for California. And I think that's because they got out ahead of this early. While Trump was saying there's no problem, both Cuomo and Newsom and other governors were saying, yes, there is a problem, and we're going to start social distancing now. So they were a little bit ahead of the curve. They're still going to be hit hard. You know, people keep talking about the apex, that we're not near it yet. Uh,
0: Marion, what's the feeling on the ground in those states that don't have stay-at-home? I'm just thinking in Ireland. Like, it's very hard to do... um quantitative uh, comparisons but you can't do qualitative ones how people are feeling people were really crying out for measures in ireland um before they came in you know people wanted to be told to stay at home they wanted the schools to shut. they didn't want cheltenham to go ahead so in these states are they happy that these things aren't happening do they feel safe
2: yeah the, the, these are the states where there there is a sort of a. am reluctant to say it, but i have spent time in these states there's a sort of a very much a frontier mentality there's a sort of a machismo that we don't need to be told what to do you know this is america and you know and it, it ties in with a lot of other sentiments in these states where they would be very very um sort of pro second amendment pro you know a a lack of gun control that kind of thing but there are also extraordinary contradictions because for example one of my big concerns is that the coronavirus will be used and indeed is already being used as a way of really affecting civil liberties and people's rights and individual rights and i'll give you two examples of that in places like texas and um mississippi and missouri now they're saying that there are no abortions to be allowed because they're saying they are not essential operations but yet they're allowing people to roam around the streets you know so they're they're using it as an artificial way of cracking down on women's reproductive rights. Also, it's being used to crack down on on migrants' rights and border rights. Nobody knows at the moment what's happening to all those people who are in detention centres, all those migrants who are in detention centres, including children, in places along the border that are wholly ill-equipped to deal with you know, large numbers of people. What's happening to these people? I can't get an answer whenever I call DHS or whenever I call Customs and Border Patrol. Um, And, and, you know, there's a a sort of a situation in America, and I don't know if it's true here as well, that it seems the country can only deal with one story at a time. So now we're talking coronavirus, um, deaths, infection rates and testing, every day all the time but we're not looking at the other impacts of the coronavirus as i said the impact on civil liberties what's happening um to the most vulnerable people what's happening to uh, like uh, are the instance of, is i been monitoring the instances of child abuse where children are known to live in abusive homes is anyone monitoring the instance of domestic abuse you know there are a lot uh, there are a whole lot of other things that i think people are sort of really not paying enough attention to at the moment
0: so are these decisions being taken by individual states in terms of say the abortion or how people at the border are treated or anything else that's unique to the state itself or are these um, federal responses?
2: Well it's a mix the, the states have the rights to, to regulate um, things like abortion they can say okay we're not allowing clinics to carry out abortions at the moment because that's not necessary um, with things like the border control and migration that that's federal that comes from the CBP from the Department of Homeland Security and the various border agencies so that's a federal response. It it, it, do, it does really get confusing. Now, in terms of um, states, as I said, like Texas, like Florida, uh, red states like North Dakota, like um, Utah, Mississippi, Missouri, etc., They take their cues from the governors. Now, in these states, the governors are all Republicans. They're they're all states that spend very, very little money on public health care. They're all states that seem to be doing little or no testing at the moment. And they are states, as I said, there is a sort of a frontier spirit of don't tell us what to do. You know, this is America. We all have our own. You know, we can all make our own minds up about how we're going to deal with this. Uh, Unfortunately, this isn't really a time for individuals making up their own minds this is really a time when you know it might be okay for one person as we all know to make up their own mind but that one person could be responsible for you know passing on a virus a deadly virus to god knows many other people so what what is really missing here in the big piece is strong consistent leadership from the white house Uh, because if donald trump is sending out a strong consistent message on a daily basis that look this is what we need to do this is where we are He had put um, in place a a, a sort of a a kind of a quasi. There isn't a national shutdown order here. He has not said at any stage, okay. And you know, there are legal reasons that he cannot enforce it from Washington. But he is not really, really, really being strong enough about saying to everybody in America to stay at home, stay at home. You know, because that's what people need to do: self-isolate. And as a result, the Republican states are interpreting his unwillingness or reluctance to do that as saying, look, it's okay, you're all fine here and you know we're not a densely populated state, we'll be fine. So I think this is going to be a problem down the road.
0: Where does insurance in the U.S. come into play? God, yeah, like I, I lived there for a couple of years and I, I was without insurance for about a week while I waited for a visa to come in. And I remember just being absolutely petrified that I would just break my arm and bankrupt my parents at the same time. Um, and, and you
2: probably could have. I'm sure your parents would have been petrified as well if, yeah. they, knew, if they knew what they were on the hook for. So what, when, how does it come into play when you have a pandemic? Well, that, you know what, Sinead, that is a really good question because it really has, I think, exposed the degree to which you do need a strong public health service to underpin, you know, a private health service, if that's what people want, because it's so peaceful at the moment. It's really up to states themselves to decide how much money they want to spend on public health. OK, by public health, I mean, if you don't have insurance or if you're somebody who you know, Obama uh, brought in the Obamacare um, bill about ten years ago now, more than ten years ago. The Act, which meant that a lot more people who previously couldn't afford insurance are now insured. So, if you are at a certain rate, like if you live at the poverty line, you know, or below it, or if you're at slightly above it, there are now about 13 million people in America who have insurance who didn't have it previously prior to Obama, but they don't have to pay for that. That is given to them in the form of free health care which which just didn't exist here before so now for those people things are considerably better because now you can if you, if you become critically ill with this you can go to a hospital you can get treated and you don't have to worry about as you say selling whatever it is you own, are being bankrupted as a result. Um, for most people whose employers are giving them insurance, that's about 150 million Americans, they're pretty well covered. Now, there are deductibles, there are all kinds of things that you probably will have to pay yourself, but in the main, you're covered. People who are not covered so well are people who tend to be self-employed or who make a little bit too much money to get free medical care, but not enough to afford a decent insurance plan, what happens to them really remains to be seen because, again, it's states who have good public health care plans like California and New York and who have decent hospital systems who will be able to help those people the most. But if you're in a state where there's little or no um, public health care, where county hospitals are run into the ground, which is what happens in those states, you're going to be in trouble because you can't afford um, to go you know to private treatment. And if you're getting treatment in a hospital that you've got to pay for yourself, the hospitals here are for profit. And um, the costs are astronomical. Even to go in to you know an, an, an ER like an emergency unit here can cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. I didn't have health insurance um, when I came here first and I broke my foot, stupid me, it cost me an absolute fortune just to get a cast and to get crutches and to go back and to get the x-rays. And we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. So, you know, you, it, it really is for those people, they are worried and, and I'm afraid to say they should be worried. Um, but the other problem at the other end is the healthcare system is being overwhelmed. So even if you have the best insurance, In America, you really there are only so many doctors, there are only so many ICU beds, there are only so many ventilators. Now, what's happening is there is another tier at the top, top tier, and this is called concierge health memberships. So, if you, for example, wanted to pay between ten and fifty thousand dollars a year. Additional for what's known as a concierge um, health service, which is what some of these private health insurance companies offer, you're probably going to be okay. They're probably going to fly you to wherever you need to go. They're going to get you tested as soon as you ask for a test. So the very wealthy people in America will be absolutely fine. A lot of people who can't afford health care hopefully will get taken care of. Um, Again, depending on how their individual states have chosen to apply Obamacare and um, people who are not particularly wealthy or at the lower end of the middle class are the ones who are going to be most vulnerable
1: and
0: to, to make this kind of crass I guess how does that play in when you come to November that breakdown
2: well you know I think as I say the way things are being handled in the White House they're very very aware of November I think that um this this any a presidency is always defined by a crisis. This is how people view their president. How did he respond when we needed him? So far, Donald Trump's ratings are going up. I have to say because, again, I remember this with nine eleven when George Bush, George W. Bush, even though he disappeared for seven hours, even though he he did stay in that classroom reading to children after he heard the country was under attack, even though it. Um, emerged very, very quickly after the attacks, that he had been warned repeatedly about chatter, about something coming down the pipe. His approval rating still went to over 90 percent. And that is because at times like this, America, which is, you know, a federal state of 50 states, they want a leader. They want one person who's going to tell them it's going to be okay And this is what we're going to do to fix it. Um, And George W. Bush, after a very shaky start, did briefly step up to that role. And he was, Unifying, he didn't, you know. He, he he was, he did well. The moment of nine eleven sort of met his very black and white vision of good people, bad people, and America really rallied around that. Um, at the moment, America has given Donald Trump approval ratings of up to around fifty percent, which are terrible by any other standard. But by Donald Trump's standards, the, his his rates are improving now. Whether this will hold steady, um, come the, over the next couple of months, because. If the death rates do go to 100,000 or 150,000 or 250,000, a lot of people are going to be asking with very good reason, How Donald Trump responds between then and now, you see, they've already given out a lot of money. And that two trillion dollar bill translates into money for like cash for ordinary Americans, which is a good thing. But that won't last for long. So it's where will the country be in September, October if there is massive unemployment, which a lot of people expect? Um, you know, then again, you have to say the Democrats in Joe Biden do not have a strong candidate. Uh, Joe Biden does have experience. He has executive experience. He's a decent man. He's a man who's generally well liked, but he is not somebody who is seen as a fiercely competent leader in the way somebody like Andrew Cuomo would be.
0: And just a final question that we're asking everybody. We're doing a kind of round the world tour of how this is going um, for everybody else. Is there anything kind of culturally specific we've seen? So one of the things we've seen across the board is that everybody has supply themselves with a lifetime worth of toilet roll no matter what country you're in if you're if you're a scandinavian if you're a german if you're in the uk or ireland you are buying too much toilet roll for for yourself um but is there anything culturally specific you mentioned the frontier attitude of some of the red states but is there anything else culturally specific in the u.s that is either really helping or hindering the effort to to stop the spread of this virus
2: i'll tell you what's really culturally specific to california and and it makes me laugh is that Home delivery sales of cannabis have gone through the roof. Everyone's stocking up on cannabis because it's legal here for medicinal medicinal reasons, I beg your pardon, but also for recreational. And so everybody's stuck at home. Nobody can go out. So basically everybody's saying, oh, look, let's just get baked. The huge thing I've noticed in California is the, the home delivery, because you can order cannabis like pizza to be delivered to your home here in California. You can also order wine to be delivered like pizza. Uh, they're really good wine home delivery services. So people are stocking up on wine and cannabis. I'm sure they're stocking up in toilet rolls as well, but they seem to be the big things that there's a run on here. And maybe it's why it's not so unpleasant being stuck in California. Who knows?
0: Whatever keeps you happy and socially distant.
2: I don't want to say every cloud has a silver lining, but as you say, whatever keeps you happy and socially distant...
0: I mentioned in my introduction that there was an outlier in this episode, and one country that has certainly been going firmly against the grain is Sweden. They have introduced social distancing measures, but in a way less draconian manner than other countries. Philip O'Connor is a freelance journalist originally from Ireland, but now based in Stockholm. Cases in Sweden are above 6,000 and deaths are still below 400 when we're examining each of these countries it is easier to look at it from a qualitative rather than a quantitative perspective. As I said in the intro we're not data scientists although this crisis kind of leads us to thinking we are sometimes and Sweden is a good example of this as their measures have some nuance to them. I asked Philip what the main restrictions are actually there.
3: There are restrictions in place but I think um, it's important to point out the difference between guidelines which is what they have here and rules which is what seem to exist in other places so you're not banned from leaving your house and people are banned from having, having gatherings of more than 50 people so that's most gigs apart from bands that I may have played in most sporting events would disappear and that kind of thing but teams are still training out there that kind of thing businesses are mostly open just in the very recent past uh, shops have been told that they have to restrict the number of people that they allow in and uh, to try to stop queues forming or to make sure that people practice social distancing in those queues but again should they their guidelines so it's not like in Norway where some fella had a party and uh, you know somebody with COVID 19 went there and he got fined like two and a half thousand euros. You know, So there's not that kind of thing going on here in Sweden. So it's very much sort of softly, softly, and they're very much appealing to uh, people to practice sort of personal responsibility. So the point would be, if you feel in any way sick, if you feel like you have the flu or any symptoms whatsoever, you're being encouraged to stay home. Uh, The guidelines also say that if possible, uh, you should try to work from home wherever possible. But obviously, if you work in a factory or if you drive a taxi or a bus, that's not possible for you to do. So there's a pretty comprehensive set of Uh, state supports there uh, to keep people's wages up to ensure they can pay rent and that kind of thing. But so far it's guidelines and no sort of lockdown legislation here in Sweden.
0: We've spoken of the surge of cases arriving in Ireland by mid-April are you looking at something similar in Sweden?
3: The thing that surprises me, or not surprises me, Sinead, but they seem to be very much on top of the data here. You mentioned that we'd all need to be dates, data scientists to do sort of any sort of a, a comparison at certain levels, and that, that's very much true. But I've been speaking to people in the last few days like Mr. Tegnell, like a guy called Johan Yuseke, who's also an epidemiologist. I was speaking to the head of an ICU in one of the country's major hospitals and what will be the biggest ICU in the country uh, by the end of the week. And they were telling me that the data modeling that they're using, using artificial intelligence and using all sorts of data points that they've got from all over the world, they've been able to predict very, very accurately what uh, the development of the sickness or the development of the crisis here is going to be. So as yet, they're all very, very calm. And, you know, I'd have to say, you know, I'm consuming, obviously, Irish media, UK media, American media as well. So I'm somewhat hurling on the ditch here because I'm listening to the Swedish side and the experts on one side. But I'm also hearing the experiences from the Journal and from RTE and from places like that as well. And to be honest, I don't know what to think. But there's a certain sense of calm about them that would give you, you know, faith in them. They seem to think that, OK, this is going... Uh, Not according to plan is not how I would describe it, but this is going how we expected it to go. And as long as they're not panicking, well, you know, most of the Swedish people don't see any reason to panic just yet either.
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons that we're in these extreme restrictions is because there's a fear it will overwhelm our health service, overwhelm our ICU beds. That's in a population of, you know, four four and a bit million and, and a few hundred ICU beds. Is that situation in Sweden very different then?
3: Yeah, well, one of the things that they have done, this is a great country for planning, right? They're fantastic at organising things, at planning things, right? So if you're trying to get a decision taken in Sweden, it takes forever. I know Irish companies who have tried to export here in the beginning, they get very, very frustrated because it takes a year, a year and a half just to get, you know, discussion going, uh, you know, from when you start the discussion to when you get an order. But it's a very, very organised society. So there would have been contingency plans that have existed for this kind of thing, not specifically COVID-19, but, you know, for pandemics, for epidemics, for that kind of thing. Kind of thing. So, very, very quickly, they were able to dispatch the materials for a field hospital, which is uh, at a conference center on the south side of town. Here, I think there was like 500 odd beds went up in there. But in the Huntinga Karolinska uh, campus, which is the hospital that I was at this morning, they took me through the new building that they have there. They, this was going to be operating theatres, going to be that kind of thing. But uh, now they've decided it's all going to be ICUs because they're going to need that capacity. And I was saying to them, okay, but is this going to be enough? And that's really what they don't know. So it really depends on people sort of, you know, take, taking social distancing seriously, on them working from home, on them not doing stupid things and going out uh, if they have that kind of symptom. you know. But the capacity at the moment, again, they weren't nervous. They seem to think that what they have is going to be enough. But again, it's one of those things that we've been saying for the last two or three weeks. Everybody has been talking about flattening the curve. Everybody has been talking about not overwhelming the, the health services wherever possible. But one of the other things Sinead that's worth pointing out is that Um, Sweden has always had this great social safety net, right? So people here don't see missing a day's work the way we might do in Ireland or the way you might do in the United States of America. If you miss a shift uh, wherever you work in America, You don't get paid for the day. Whereas here, there is social support there. You're not going to lose your job. You're not, you know, hopefully you're not on a zero hours contract or that kind of thing. So it's, you know, people would be more inclined to stay at home themselves if they were sick or if they had a sick child. And that in turn reduces the exposure of those around them to COVID-19. So I think that might be, you know, part of the. The thinking behind that the people will actually take that personal responsibility because the culture is so much different
0: yeah so it, has that been the experience then like what is it quieter on the streets even though that these bans aren't in place
3: yeah I mean it's definitely quieter on the streets um I'm at like secretary here in the city center I have a little uh, bunker studio slash office here and it is absolutely noticeable the traffic uh, in terms of cars and that kind of thing is probably about 20, 25% of what a regular weekday at this time of the year might be. Um, you don't see people in the restaurants. I was talking to an Irish bar owner here who's at a pub for 16 years. His trade has dropped off by 75%. So all bars over here would sell food, but he doesn't sell a whole lot of food. It's more a drinking bar than, than an eating restaurant, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, everywhere has sort of fallen off in that way. People are staying away. They're not having parties. They're not getting together in the same way. You know, I mean my wife's parents live about 60 kilometers away, but we're not visiting her parents with our children for the time being. So people are, you know, it's almost, it comes almost naturally to them that you don't have to stand there with a big stick and say, look, don't do this. People tend to have a certain amount of common sense about it. But certainly the foot traffic, you know, uh, again, you know, close to me here is one of the sort of bigger uh, underground stations. And then there's a commuter train station not too far from that again. And it's very, very noticeable now. You know, when I leave the office this evening, it's going to be very, very noticeable how little traffic, how, how few people are out there. So, you know, you're dealing with a high tech economy. You're dealing with a knowledge economy here. There are a lot of people who can work from home. Uh, Luckily, the infrastructure here, the broadband infrastructure is very good. So people are able to do that and their kids are able to watch Netflix and, you know, the whole system hasn't collapsed just yet.
4: Is
0: there um, here before we had very severe restrictions, there was a lot of people calling for them. They wanted, you know, borders to be closed. They wanted um, to be banned from going outside. They almost some people wanted to see military on the streets. Have there been calls from within Sweden to to increase that ask of citizens to to do it more by um by rules rather than guidelines
3: I think there's there's quite a robust debate in the academic community among epidemiologists and microbiologists that I've seen. But in general, people aren't calling for that kind of thing just yet. You know, it was was kind of odd to see how many people wanted to close down. I mean, Denmark closed the borders. Uh, Norway, I was in Portugal with the Norwegian women's football team and when they came home, the players who played in Norway were quarantined for 14 days. They were told, you know, go home, don't come out for 14 days. That was everybody, the staff, the whole lot. Whereas the Norwegian players who played in Sweden were back training with their clubs, the next day, which, you know, it's a bit odd considering we all came from the same place and those of us who live in Sweden weren't subject to any of these things, and yet I haven't heard of anybody out of that team who has actually contracted the virus, so it's hard to say uh, who's doing things right, who's doing things wrong, there aren't too many calls as yet, in fact it's actually almost aggressively in the other direction, because, you know, there's this such great belief in the state and in the ability of the state to take the correct decision that they have the right people and the right experts in the right place that you know if you say oh no you know we should probably close things down even more the people are saying hold on a second you know that's what we pay these people for we have to trust them and that kind of thing and you know people are really sort of pushing back on that idea you know so it's a uh, it's definitely an interesting one i mean
0: because yeah, it, it does seem like quite an outlier in europe the fact that th- those restrictions are still at the you know 50 person level rather than at the one or two um what has te- Testing been like there?
3: Uh, I wouldn't say it's been great. Um it's famously, the climate activist Geitha Thunba, she was down in Europe a few weeks ago doing her thing, she was at these um, school strikes for the climate in various different places, and her and her father came back by train um, through Copenhagen then up through Sweden to Stockholm and she was out on Instagram saying that she felt that she had the symptoms of the virus she called her local health service uh, or local health centre, she said herself and her father thought that they had the virus, and they said, oh that's fine stay where you are, so they were never tested so of the 4,947 people I told you about who are confirmed at the, the, the time we're speaking, they wouldn't be included in that there's a friend of mine who works for an accountancy firm here who's from Northern Ireland, Uh, he believes that he has uh, the virus as well, but he hasn't been tested. The same thing there, because we don't have a treatment for it. There's no point, so to speak, and taking them in and that kind of thing, and they're just saying, right, stay where you are. I did speak to one man last night, 26-year-old man in the city centre, and he was saying that he was tested in the hospital car park, like sitting in his car outside, and pretty much the same thing, they just sent him home. But because he was diagnosed at a medical facility, he would be included in that figure of almost 5,000, but there's a lot of other people that haven't. So basically the way the health service works here is there's a lot of primary care. You have a local health centre, you call them at 8 o'clock in the morning, you tell them your symptoms, and then they decide if you need an appointment or not and you know you go in you have your test or whatever but i wouldn't say there's a huge amount of testing being done here certainly not compared to uh korea i think was south korea was testing a lot of people germany is testing very very aggressively but the kind of track and trace thing that we've seen in other countries is not really being seen in sweden
0: Yeah, and that kind of goes against who guidelines it does go against who guidelines and as you said there's very little criticism of what's being done there
3: Yeah, well, I think a lot of it has to do with resources. I was kind of surprised, pleasantly surprised, if you will, when they explain to you what they're doing and why. You know, it's it's like we're going to science or we're looking for answers. Answers, but science doesn't really provide us with black and white answers in the way that we expect to. It provides us with courses of action, you know, so it's very, very seldom that you can get a whole, but if, like if you get 100 people in any field together, you know, you're not going to get consensus on absolutely everything. So I think the Swedes have sat down and said, okay, what resources do we have and how could we best use them? So you could have, you know, all the nurses in the country going around in their cars with testing kits and testing everybody, but you know, the Swedes would say, well, that's maybe not what we need right now. We need those people in the hospitals looking after the people that who are taking who are making their way there and who we're testing there and who we know have this case, who we know have this disease so they're choosing to deploy the, the resources and it's a radically different way of doing it if you compare uh, as you mentioned there to germany and to the world health organization guidelines but that's kind of their prerogative and they've decided that they're sort of you know and not to be glib about it, but they're going to live and die by the decisions that they make here. Now, one of the things that they can't tell me, again, this thing about consensus among experts and that kind of thing, I've asked them, you know, what will you do if there's a spike? What will you do if this goes the way that it seems to have gone in most other countries that have gone into lockdown? And the answer I'm getting from all of them is, uh, talk to me in two weeks. So they can't predict, they're not willing to say, they're not willing to, you know, even countenance the idea of a lockdown. Certainly not in public at this time. I'm sure it's being discussed politically. I'm sure that these experts are discussing it behind closed doors but they're very very careful in how they're communicating and that in turn is causing problems because people who would be skeptical about it including other scientists they're not getting the sort of the data the decisions are made on So it's very, very difficult for them then to evaluate those decisions and say, yes, well, that may be right. I've changed my way of thinking or no, this may be wrong. So, you know, there's a sort of the, the loudest side at the moment is the official side. It is the authorities. They're saying this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. They're not really getting into too much depth about it. And people are continuing on about it. But it is radically different from the way that other countries are doing
0: And one of the questions we've been asking other contributors to The Explainer today is kind of culturally specific habits and attitudes that either help or hinder um, the effort. So kind of that sounds like the whole approach from government down is culturally specific to Sweden.
3: I think it is. I think it's something that you would see in Nordic countries in general, in particular in Finland and Sweden, to a lesser extent in Norway and Denmark, that there is this great trust to the state. And if you give somebody something to do, then you believe in them and you don't question them. You let them get on with it. You pick the best people for the job and then you get the hell out of their way and let them go to work. That's culturally specific. Social distancing, I've described that as a synonym for living in Scandinavia because people here aren't enormously tactile. They wouldn't sort of go around, sort of, you know, hugging and kissing one another. You know, certainly, you know, the lads I would have played football with, we'd all greet each other with a handshake and a little hug and get on with that but that's not something that permeates all of swedish society just yet so in terms of that it's pretty good kids are really really good here it's, they're almost indoctrinated into washing their hands before and after meals and when they use the bathroom and that kind of thing you know so um that kind of hand hygiene is something that has always existed you know i think certain countries like the netherlands didn't have great statistics about that certainly before this crisis sweden is always there they're when it comes to these things so and there is this idea as well. Again, it's, we shouldn't forget that idea that, you know, if you were to bring your kids to daycare and they have a runny nose, they'd be sent home. And this is, forget COVID-19, this is just regular, you know, if the flu season or that kind of thing, because they, they do transmit these diseases, that kind of thing. You know, so people try to... Uh, stay at home. You're paid to stay at home with your child. If your child is sick, you get 80% of your salary up to a certain point to stay at home with them. So there's literally no point in sending them to school. It's not like you're going to lose, you know, your payment for a shift if you can't do it. You know, so there's definitely a lot in society that is built. Um, to, to handle a situation like that, or certainly maybe not to handle it, but to make it easier to get people to comply with what it is that the government is asking them to do for the time being. And if it comes to lockdown, you'll find that the Swedes will probably obey that pretty much as well.
0: One of the things then that probably hasn't happened there, if I'm reading uh, between the lines correctly, is panic buying hasn't been
3: a problem. Uh, we did go through the toilet roll thing. Everybody went through that. I don't know why. Uh, there it's has the a one little...
0: thing. It's the one common thing.
3: Yeah, well, I, don't know what, I don't know why. And I, I, I don't know. There's a great PhD to be had out of that. If there's any scientists listening to want to get into that, I'd love to know why this happened. But there was a little bit now. Um, on certain occasions, uh, people were going out and they were buying pasta and rice, so there was a little bit less of those things on the supermarket shelves. And then one time I went to the supermarket and there was—I wouldn't say there was no toilet roll, pa- uh, toilet paper left, but there was very little, you know. And now people seem to have realised that okay, we're okay here. The supply chains are working, certainly for the time being, so there's no need to do these things. And uh, you know that message has been put out. But I think as well, Sinead, that they're speaking every day. The state holds a press conference every day, right? It has a public health institute. It has uh, the equivalent of. Pho- if FOSS still exists or the employment office will be there as well. They put up four or five of the leading experts of the people with responsibility for these areas. And this almost constant flow of information from them is really sort of, you know... it's leading to a sense of security because people are hearing these things every day they're hearing that hey we don't need to buy up all these things so we're okay we don't need to panic in any way we don't need to flee to the countryside we don't need to do any of these things that the experts are doing these things that we can trust them so that has led to a sort of a building of trust there and to less panic point. there are certainly people doing it i'm sure we probably have an extra pack of the pasta at home and the odd loo roll that's hidden at the bottom of a wardrobe somewhere ourselves but not to the extent that we've seen you know where people are at i was in one supermarket actually recently where there's a sort of of a meat soup you can get in a jar, and for some reason all of that was gone. So i feel feeling that somebody just went in there, just bought up that, thinking that you know if everything does go to pot, well then at least they'll have that to live on. But that would be very much the exception rather than the rule in this situation.
0: What what's the supports in terms of rent mortgages um outside of like the social uh, welfare supports?
3: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you for my own situation. I'm a freelance journalist. I have a limited company, and that means you know that uh, it's like my liability is limited there. But you know, when the Olympics disappeared, I work a lot with sport. Uh, the Olympics disappeared. The European Championships disappeared. I keep saying that it looks like my calendar is sponsored by Tipex at the moment because there's so much white space in it. But the government put in a thing. Uh, they put in a system in. in in place to say that okay if you can only work 40 percent if you only have enough commissions to work two days a week well then we'll pay you for the other three days up to a certain amount you know so that's um you know that's a great sense of security for me you know in that you know you're going to get paid you know that you'll be able to take a wage out of it you'll be able to pay the rent of the studio and you'll be able to pay your mobile phone bill and that kind of thing and that applies not just to my sector but to an awful lot of sectors you know you get musicians and people who work in culture will also be covered by that kind of thing so you know i mean if you look at people who work in music and comedy and that kind of thing in ireland who are self-employed I'm not really sure how covered they are at the moment for that, you know. But, but um, for instance, now most of the unemployment benefit here would be looked after by the unions. So you'd be a member of a union, you make a payment to them. Uh, into this sort of central fund. And then when you become unemployed, the union pays you up to 80% of your salary for a fixed period. Uh, Usually you would have to be a member of a union for, you know, I think it's six months before that would apply. They're cutting down all those things. Sick days, the first two or three sick days, usually maybe the first two days, I think it used to be, you wouldn't get paid. Now you get paid from day one. You get a social welfare payment from day one. So all of those things are going in there. When it comes to rents for businesses, the state is stepping in and paying 50%. They expect the business owner to pay 25% and they expect the landlord to give a discount of their 25 percent so that everybody is is sort of losing in one way so to speak but the people can still remain in business and still remain in situ so when this crisis does pass they'll be able to hopefully go back to something resembling business as usual
0: for yourself personally philip what has the last few weeks been like it's obviously you mentioned kind of being a hurler on the ditch you're you're hearing what's happening in the uk reading what's happening in in ireland and the us as well have you restricted your movements more than your average Swedish household do you think
3: um I think I'd be conscious of it Sinead I mean I don't tend to travel on public transport a whole lot I have a little car that I nip around because you know I do a lot of work with film and video and a lot of work with sports so it's it's difficult to go with a sort of a big video camera on the on the the underground here so I have an electric moped and I have a car that I nip around on so you know but definitely socially like i trying to trained the martial arts club here. I haven't been there for you know a month. Uh, I haven't seen a football match, which is unbelievable that I haven't been up to the local football pitch to see lads training or playing football or that kind of thing. We haven't seen my wife's family. Um, I've basically seen nobody outside of my own family and the people that I work with. Now, I've been to press conferences and seen colleagues and that kind of thing. But other than that, it's socially very limiting. And that happened kind of naturally because all of those social things just sort of disappeared, if not overnight, well, certainly over the course of a couple of days. It has changed things. It's been a little bit chaotic, because one of the the upsides for me as a freelancer is that uh, camera crews aren't traveling now. So, you know, I've been working for people that I otherwise would, you know, be quite far down the list on, because they'd send their own crew here to film and that kind of thing. So picking up that kind of work. So, you know, uh, I'm sure you know yourself and being in journalism for so long. You have to be creative in this business and you have to roll up your sleeves and get out there in the street because, you know, the news very, very seldom comes to you. So I'm still doing that. But it's certainly it's very, very odd to be out sort of late at night, you know, and to be driving home from the office and there's just no cars on the street. And, you know, the 24 hour McDonald's is closed and there's nobody out anywhere and the bars are empty and that kind of thing. You know, so this is something, you know, it's not exactly the day after tomorrow, but, you know, it's certainly Uh, The the tempo has gone down considerably here in Stockholm in terms of the social networks of that.
0: Now on to the country much cited in Ireland and that our government and health officials are expecting Are aspiring to match and that is South Korea. The situation is largely under control there. It was one of the first after China to experience an outbreak and the curve has been significantly flattened with 10,000 or so cases but just 174 deaths at the time of recording. I called Anthony Kuhn, sole correspondent with NPR, and I asked him to describe the approach being taken there that we have been so eager to model here.
4: Yes well uh, you said it correctly um, South Korea has been garnering a lot of praise for its approach uh, and the key to their approach has been quite simply put testing 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 um, and this was a lesson they observe they absorbed from previous epidemics uh, most recently uh, the MERS Middle Eastern respiratory system outbreak in 2015. Um, And they reconfigured their health systems um, starting then uh, around the idea of testing. And this includes um, reconfiguring their bureaucracy, the Korean Centers for Disease Control, KCDC, um, establishing a special part of that to deal with testing, Um, working working things out between the government and the private sector so that they would have capacity, for example, lab testing uh, you know, to analyze samples that were collected and um, also information distribution. So, you know, the, the process of testing has many links in it, um, has many moving parts. And if any one of those experiences a bottleneck, then there's going to be a delay in testing. Um, but because they've been working on this for years, uh, they were able to get approval for test kits, Um, quite early after the first uh, cases were discovered in in late January. Uh, And uh, fairly quickly, they were able to test a maximum of around 20,000 people a day. And as of now, they've tested more than 400,000.
0: So were they kind of ready to press go on on all of these protocols because of the experience of MERS?
4: Yes, that's true. Um, They reacted very quickly. At the same time, it's not just about... Um, These epidemics. It's also very much about uh, general healthcare infrastructure. Um, South Korea is, uh, you know, a developed economy. And compared to other developed economies, they've got a very good ratio of hospital beds and doctors to people. Um, They have a national healthcare insurance system, which has been in place for about four decades. And if you end up in a South Korean hospital, um, I've have some experience of that and have found them to be uh, affordable and very good quality care. And they're now third, I believe, behind the U.S. and Germany as a destination for medical tourists. And if you do wind up in a South Korean hospital, your chances of surviving all sorts of diseases are quite good compared to other countries. It's not just about epidemics, it's about overall health care, and they've been investing in that for a long time.
0: So there's healthcare, there's testing. Um, what have the restrictions been like there on movement?
4: Um, there, there are no lockdowns per se, and that's the philosophy behind testing. If you know who has the virus and who does not, um, then you're just able to isolate the people who have it, trace their contacts. It's when you can't do that, you don't know who has it and who doesn't, that you have to lock down entire cities and regions. And so even at the height of this thing, when about 900 cases, new cases were popping up a day in the epicenter of Daegu, the fourth largest city, even that place was not locked down. Uh, people were told to stay off the streets and out of restaurants and cafes, and they did. Um, but people were coming in, at, in and out of the city. It was a transport hub, and for a while that city's medical system was, was overwhelmed, and and a lot of people were not getting hospital beds that need them, but they've since um, recovered uh, with some help from the rest of the country.
0: So, are things operating as almost normal there now?
4: No, not really, um, because um, because the case numbers were declining, and the number of the number of people who have been treated and cured and released is now about half of the total. Um, People are feeling pretty good about it. And what they were hoping to do was a sort of soft reboot um, in which businesses open up with um, a certain amount of social distancing. People go to work with masks. Uh, People at cafes are seated uh, uh, with more space between them and things like that. Uh, But yesterday, the government said we're just not there yet. There are still too many... um, there, there is still still too many new cases popping up, so that that plan for a soft reboot has been shelved at the moment. Uh, and you know, the epidemic has taken a huge toll on the economy, on on people's um, livelihoods, on people's mental health. People are feeling stir crazy and cooped up after a couple of months of this. Um, at the same time, um, very interestingly, a a poll was done by Seoul National University yesterday. Uh, which showed that um, you know people are feeling pretty good about the way their government has handled this. One of the most interesting things the polls showed was that um, the um, the KCDC uh, has an eighty six percent approval rating. It's the most trusted institution in the country. Uh, the presidential office saw a huge. Just to
0: explain the KCDC to, to yeah, listeners,
4: the the Korean uh, Center for Disease Control, the KCDC. Uh, is now the most trusted institution in the country. The president's office got a big bump. Um, and people feel that compared to other countries, they're doing quite well. So um, the, praise, the praise that <laughs> South Korea has been receiving in the, in the international media has been noticed.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that there's, there'll be a soft reboot, but it hasn't been quite a lockdown. So what, what kind of things are in place that wouldn't usually be in place there?
4: Well, schools are all out uh, for the moment. Um, uh, football and baseball leagues and things like that are suspended. Concerts are suspended. Military exercises have been scaled back, cancelled, pushed um, pushed back. Um, just about everything has been affected.
0: And how have people taken that? Like, what's the, I guess, cultural response to that? Are South Koreans compliant? Is it is it um, forced by police? What What's the how is it operating?
4: Um, there, there are cases where people can be jailed or fined for um, violating the, the, um, the government's guidance on these things, but, uh, and there, there is, I should say, also debate about um, several aspects. Um, one is that uh, more than half of the cases in the country have been associated with a religious group. You can call it, some people believe it's a cult, some people believe it's a new religious movement called the Shinchanji Church of Jesus. Um, It's critics say it's very secretive um, and that they have not fully cooperated with authorities. The group says it has cooperated. Uh, And so um, a lot of people want the group disbanded. Others feel that they've been uh, scapegoated somewhat. Uh, People also say that um, not just religious minorities but also ethnic minorities, in particular Chinese, um, have been stigmatized. and also also patients are sometimes blamed for having the disease and certainly for spreading it. So you hear that um, you hear, hear people argue that uh, Asian countries like South Korea have populations that are obedient or compliant. There is, there is a certain amount of respect for authority, but I think there's also a certain more proactive civic mindedness. People want to do their part and be responsible. But, um, you know, part of this issue of stigmatization also has to do with the way they use data in this country. Uh, Epidemiological trackers who try to find out who's been in contact with whom are empowered to go through uh, cell phone, GPS data, and also credit card records. And then they send out warnings to people about cases in their neighborhood so that they know to stay away from them. Um, but sometimes this uh, too much information gets out and people can be identified and stigmatized So um, it's you know while while the government's approach is generally seen as successful both in South Korea and abroad there are certainly areas of debate and and you know certainly people who, whose data is released uh, without their consent are not happy about it
0: Yeah, it's kind of each society has seen kind of different side effects, I guess, that's unique to to their set of circumstances. So that's obviously one in South Korea, one in the UK and Ireland, um, more so the UK has been panic buying. Um, You know, once people have been told that they have to stay at home, the urge is to make sure that you have every single thing that you could possibly wish for in the the coming days and weeks. Has that happened in uh, Seoul or anywhere else in, in South Korea?
4: Uh, early on, there there were runs on on certain goods. Um, face masks were in short supply. The government moved very quickly um, to take over production and distribution of those to make sure that everyone could get them. There were um, there were runs on on instant noodles, um, which were hard to get at some point. But uh, now it's uh, it's not so bad. Uh, there, there's there's panic buying has succeeded everything there's not really a lot of stuff that's in short supply um but uh you know it's it's been tough people have been cooped up at home for a long time and right now it's um it's cherry blossom season in south korea and japan and people are sorely tempted to head to the to the parks for picnics but uh uh they're they're enjoined not to i've 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 been going and um taking my family, and if I see the parking lot is full, I turn around. So uh, it, it's, it's hard. It's been, it's been a long time being cooped up.
0: What has the financial aid from the government been for people who are out of work and you know things have sh- shut down um, for them? Uh,
4: South Korea is a very free market system. A lot of the economy is made up of uh, small businesses, family-run mom-and-pop stores and restaurants, um, and they're going to get aid from the government. Uh, Major corporations, uh, household names such as Samsung and Hyundai and the like uh, have run into a lot of difficulties. A lot of them um, export parts to China, uh, which are then assembled and shipped on. So they've taken a big hit. They've had to suspend production in a lot of things like car factories, um, LCDs and other things they make. Um, different localities have dealt with this in different ways. Uh, there is one province who is guaranteed basic income, uh, cash handouts for every family. That's, uh, that's, um, that's only one example. Not every province has been doing that, but, uh, it's, it's been very difficult and, uh, there are predictions that the economy will go into recession. Um, but, uh, some, some sectors are, you know, still function, functioning marginally. The South, uh, South Koreans are big exporters and the exports are still going out. Um, but um, things are very tough and the government is, is trying to look at the long term, how they can cushion the impact.
0: And in terms of the relationship with North Korea, how much news are you getting from, from North Korea on, on how that they're handling it or how it, it is there?
4: Uh, well, even today, they have been denying that they have a single case. Uh, they say they've put thousands of people into quarantine. They're requiring people to uh, wear masks on the Pyongyang subways and things of that sort. But uh, ep- experts are very skeptical that they that they do not have any cases. Uh, the reason being that um, historically, every... Um, epidemic that has come from China has not stopped at the border. Um, Even though North Korea shut its border to China, uh, there's always smuggling going on across the the, the borders, the rivers that separate North Korea and China. Uh, It's it's an important part of how um, a sector of their economy functions. Um, Also, their healthcare system is just in very poor shape. They lack uh, some of the most basic supplies, such as disposable gloves and masks, and in some hospitals, they even lack running water and electricity. How are you going to keep your, your hands clean without running water? You know, uh, South Korea, the U.S. have, have both offered uh, assistance. So far, uh, there's been nothing at the official level. Um, But people are are very concerned that, uh, you know, they could be quickly inundated with cases, their hospitals could be overwhelmed, and they might might really need some assistance. But at this point, uh, all we have is uh, anecdotal uh, reports that are very difficult to confirm, saying that there are cases, but the government just isn't admitting it.
0: Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thanks to Kate, Marion, Philip and Anthony for their time and work on this episode. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find a lot of other shows on the coronavirus and much more. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you are enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.